Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to this session on Is Fashion Wearing Out the World as part of All About Women. My name is Michaela Kolofsky, and I'm going to tell you about how today's session will run. But first, I just wanted to ask you to turn your mobile phones off, if you have them, or turn them onto silent, and to let you know that the session is being live streamed, so there are cameras at either side of the stage, but also to remind you not to take any photographs while you're in here. So it's my pleasure to welcome you to today's session. Uh, what will happen in a moment is I will introduce Lucy Siegel. She will speak for 30 to 35 minutes, and then there'll be a lot of time at the end for you to ask your questions. So you can see there are microphones, one and two, at either end of the rows in the middle. So fear not, as we're going through today's session, please think of your questions, keep them in your mind, and uh, we'll make sure that we leave a lot of time for you to discuss them with Lucy at the end. Lucy Siegel is a journalist and broadcaster. Her focus is environmental and social justice issues and ethical consumerism. As a columnist for the Observer newspaper, she writes about ethical living. Lucy also created the paper's Observer Ethical Awards, dubbed the Green Oscars, which is now in its eighth year. Lucy's book, To Die For, Is Fashion Wearing Out the World, was published in 2011 and was nominated for the Orwell Prize for Investigative Nonfiction in 2012. Her latest ebook is We Are What We Wear, How Fast Fashion Caused the Collapse of Rana Plaza, and it's published this month. With Livia Firth, Lucy co-founded the Green Carpet Challenge. Together, they've worked with some of the biggest designer names in the world to bring credible, sustainable style to red carpet events, notably the Oscars. On television, Lucy has presented hundreds of films for the BBC One series, The One Show. Her film topics range from current affairs and politics to the popularity of naked photo shoots. In September 2012, she directed and produced Green Cut, an acclaimed short film on sustainable style, and she's also the associate producer of a forthcoming documentary feature, The True Cost of Fashion. She's an honorary professor to the London College of Fashion at the University of the Arts. From time to time, there are people who come along who help us look at the world a little differently. These are the people who stick their head above the parapet and say, do you ever wonder where your shirt came from? That's what Lucy Siegel has done. In her book, To Die For, Is Fashion Wearing Out the World? Lucy dissects the methods and means used by the fashion industry when it comes to making the fast fashion we love to consume. Her work in the area of ethical consumerism describes the human, social and environmental costs of the clothes we wear. Lucy's book is a wake-up call. What is the real cost of our obsession with fashion? Today, Lucy will talk about her work in this area and give us some updates since her book was published in 2011. Please join me in welcoming Lucy Siegel. Thank you, thank you. Hello, Sydney. I've always wanted to say that. Thank you. Thank you, Michaela, for a very lovely introduction. I, um, I'm going to talk for a bit. I do talk quite fast, and I do have an accent, so I hope you can understand what I'm saying. And the first question isn't, what did you just say? But I, I can recap if we need to. Um, I'm just going to really talk about some of the big numbers in fashion, which is why I've called this bit Fashion by Numbers. Uh, my book is called To Die For, Is Fashion Wearing Out the World? And it's a little bit rhetorical, as you probably thought. Um, this is a full-spectrum industry fashion, and it's really, really important to remember that and not to be too daunted by it from the outset. When I wrote my book, that was one of the things that daunted me because you are looking at a full-spectrum industry which ranges from growing fibre, from growing plants, from farming, essentially, right the way through to marketing, producing fashion shows. And that sometimes throws up a lot of dichotomies, a lot of dilemmas, and it's one of the things that I think people people have a problem getting their heads round with fashion is just how full spectrum it is. We're going to discover that. Okay, so looking at some of the numbers, by my reckoning, we produce 80 billion new garments every year. So this is a $30 trillion industry globally, and when we talk about that, we're really talking about fashion and textiles which encompasses fast fashion, which we're going to talk about a lot today, I think. And it also goes right through to the luxury goods industry, which is an increasingly important player. 
So it is massive, massive. We're not going to go short of clothes. Um, now, I sometimes felt like most of these were in my wardrobe or my wash basket concurrently, which is really what started me on this journey. Now, despite 80 billion new garments being produced every year, despite the fact that I had so many, despite fast fashion that you know, enables us to buy more and more and more, we don't, really, we don't exactly cherish these pieces. So we have entered an era of fashion disposability, which we're also going to talk about. In the UK, some research was done, and it was found that we chucked two million tonnes of textile and mainly garment waste every year. So clothes were just going in the trash, basically. And a lot of these were hardly worn or had been worn once. In my book, I've got a couple of examples because I really like to talk to consumers. I love to talk to shoppers. I love it when people emerge from a store. I love going through their bags to see what they've bought. I do ask them first, <laughs> honestly. Or sometimes I just leap in and then I sort of explain as I'm going, what, what is this? What is this? How much did you pay for this? And what, one of the questions that I really like to ask people, that I always ask them, is how long do you intend to keep this for? And they look at me blankly. What do you mean? What do you mean? How, how would I know? Depends how I feel. And that's one of the essential issues around fast fashion and how it has speeded up. So back to, back to me, back to why I started this. I felt like there was a lot of those 80 billion garments in my wardrobe, and there were. I had 19 pairs of jeans. So I... Ooh, you're really shocked about that, Australia. <laughs> in Britain, everyone goes, yeah, yeah, I've got 19 as well, it's fine. It's quite a low number. So I had 19 pairs of jeans, and some of them were awful. I'm just going to be completely honest. They didn't really fit me. They probably, some of them had never fitted me, to be honest. So I did that classic thing I bought for when I was thinner. Didn't happen. Uh, I never buy for when I'm fatter. I don't know if anyone else buys for when they're fatter. So it was a real, you know, there was a real kind of uh, problem in here. I was running out of space, and there are so many people now who keep their clothes in storage because they have so many of them. Um, so they will pay for a storage uni unit, and, and they will keep a lot of their wardrobe there because they know they're not going to wear them, but they can't stop buying. We can't stop buying. We have a, a, a rapper in the UK, Tiny Temper, and there's a great lyric in one of his songs where he says, I have so many clothes, I keep them at my aunt's house. And, it, you know, I think that's a great lyric. It's so descriptive of how we buy into fashion now. I was a fashion addict, um, and I would talk about the way that we consume fashion and the way that we're encouraged to consume, particularly fast fashion, as a form of addiction. And I don't want to be flippant about addiction, but there are some similarities, and I think there's been quite a lot of research done to pinpoint some of these similarities. And it is about not being fully in control, not really understanding the consequences of your buying pattern. And some people who have been you know, on limited incomes, resorting to credit cards, I don't think there is any coincidence where we have spiralling levels of uh, female consumer debt on credit cards and a rise in this sort of consumption, which is very much targeted at women. So I think they're all uh, interlinked, and I think that's something that we need to look at really, really carefully. Store cards as well have been a massive, massive thing with incredibly... I'm not going to put my consumer journalist hat on here, but I could get very angry about the, the APR rates and all that sort of thing. It's exploitative of the consumer, I would argue. But we love fashion. We do love fashion. And I don't think we should be ashamed about that. I don't think we should forswear fashion. Uh, sometimes I get into debates, particularly with environmentalists, particularly with, with older male environmentalists, and they say, but I've been wearing this same jumper for, for 30 years. <laughs> I'm not going to comment on that. But you know what I'm saying. You know what I'm saying. I love fashion, I love the idea that it's so transformative, that it's so empowering, that it's so innovative when it's done properly. It's an absolute thing of joy. I think it's so skilled from designers through to makers. The fact that you can produce a garment that sits well, that hangs well, that says something, that allows you to express some element of your personality. I think that's so powerful, so, so powerful. And the reason I mention this is because those are the things that we really need to fight for. And we are in a battle to preserve that element of fashion culture. 
So this is a sort of backstage at Fashion Week, a rail. So if you imagine in a few seconds, a load of models and very, very excitable people with headsets will start ransacking this and screaming at each other. Uh, I mean, it always surprises me if you've been backstage at Fashion Week anywhere. I think Australian Fashion Week's coming up, isn't it? How disorganised it is. It's like you've done this before. Surely, <laughs> surely you could have a better system. But it's all part of the joy, the theatrics of fashion. And it's such a theatrical world at that end. The problem is, it is so seductive that you tend to forget about the rest of it. And this has been a real issue. The sequence, the lights, the runway shows, the models, it's so sexy, it's so seductive that it completely distracts from the really, really important questions. How were these garments produced? Where were they produced? We also have a real anomaly with fashion weeks in general. So if you think about uh, New York, Paris, Milan, London, Australia, it's all about two collections, two shows a year. So we have spring, summer, autumn, winter. And these, this is supposed to signify the new trends. These are the fashion cycles. This is the leading thing. This is what everybody in the world is supposed to look to when they want to know what they're going to be wearing next year. Really? Spring, summer, autumn, winter? Those seasons do not really exist except for a handful of people. It has as much, these fashion weeks have as much in common with fashion as Gregorian plain song has in common with contemporary music, with the music scene. Nothing. They're just completely irrelevant. Really, what we're looking at now for most people, and what most people's experiences of consuming fashion, we have 50 seasons a year, if not more. Every week we have new designs, new collections, new looks, and these are called micro-trends. And fashion is enslaved to the micro-trends. In turn, we as consumers are also enslaved to the micro-trends. I warned you that fashion was big. If you think about those garments, if you drill down a little bit, and what really captivated me was the idea that for each piece, each garment, Think of all the processes in making that garment. So the cotton needs to be picked, it needs to be ginned, it needs to be spun, it needs to be dyed, it needs to be finished. There are so many different stages, and each of those stages, someone like me, from an environmental point of view, starts to think, well, this is going to take a lot of resources. And it is spectacular how much water is used to process denim in particular, to process cotton, how much water is needed to grow cotton. It's one of the thirstiest plant, uh, plants on the planet. It's a very useful plant, cotton. They call it the pig of botany because every single bit of it can be used. It is an amazing fibre in lots and lots of ways, but my God, it needs a lot of water. So we've seen that basically the, the fashion seasons that we're told about, that we, that we revere, the whole thing that propels you know, the big issues. I don't know if anyone's seen the September issue with Anna Winter, the behind-the-scenes documentary at Vogue. Well worth a watch. It's such a great film. But it really shows you that kind of rarefied, top-end way that fashion is portrayed. The reality is very different this is the opening of the Primark store in the UK a few years ago, uh, a new flagship store. And I don't know if you can make it out because it's not the clearest image, but the police are in there, in that crowd somewhere. They're not shopping at Primark. <laughs> well, they probably are, actually, because it's so seductive, even the police there. But it, it, this, is, this is mob shopping. So this is a phenomenon which is not just specific to fashion shopping. We've also had riots in the UK when we've had IKEA trying to... Um, they had a sale where somebody heard there was a sofa for, you know, 10 bucks or whatever. There was a mob riot there. The ambulances, the police were called. I think they had the police helicopter. This is not seemly. This is not a good look for an industry. <laughs> and it's not a good look for us either. There is, um, there's a story in my book, To Die For, which I'll just run through. I didn't actually see it. A colleague of mine who was a retail journalist spotted this. Uh, a girl emerging from this same store. You see how these are paper bags? Because they're so eco. No comment again. And she had two of these bags, bigger than these, absolutely full. This girl sort of staggered out with these bags. And it was raining, as it sometimes does in London. And... LAUGHTER 
one of the bags disintegrated, and all of the clothes fell out onto the pavement. And my friend was absolutely amazed to see that this girl just walked off and left them. She didn't even, she didn't even think about it, because it would have been too much trouble for her to stop and pick up the clothes, the folded, brand new, perfect clothes that she just bought, and she had another bag anyway. So she just walked off. And this really illustrates uh, a really important point for me. And I say it to when I speak to people in the industry. If you produce garments that have the quality and for all intents and purposes, you've produced rubbish, you've produced trash, then the consumer will treat them as trash. They've essentially become litter. Things really started to speed up when Inditex, the um, Spanish company, and Zara is one of Inditex's brands, when they came to the high street and they revolutionized the logistics of fast fashion. I think Zara's opened in Australia in the last year or so. And they produce a really fashionable, um, high, sort of more high-end looking offering. But what they do is they only produce very small quantities. And they would have their own view on how they manage uh, to keep up with trends. They bring a lot more localized production and they do a lot around logistics. But they set the bar in terms of speed. And really, that is the speed that every fashion brand is now looking to emulate. And I would argue that quite often, the speed is a really big part of the problem. Uh, so Ortega, Nuncio Ortega, who is the owner of Zara Inditex, he is the, um, he's third on the international rich list. Now, I make this point not because I'm jealous, but because there is money to be made in fast fashion, just in case you're wondering, because in a second we're going to see the other side of the coin. And it is incredible how wealthy uh, the fast fashion barons have become. And they really have taken advantage of this speeding up of the cycle. You know, the more product, I mean, it's not rocket science, is it? The more product you can shift to consumers, the more money you're going to make if you can get the margin right. And we'll investigate the margin shortly. So there really, really is a lot of money to be made. Think again of the speeding up of that cycle. It's not just fast fashion. It moves right the way through to the luxury end as well. And we're seeing designers, really big-name designers, bringing out all sorts of extra collections. The spring, summer, autumn, winter thing we saw, it doesn't apply to them either anymore. They have pre-fall season. They have yacht wear, pre-yacht, après-yacht. <laughs> Why do people need clothes for getting on and off a boat? It doesn't make any sense doesn't make any sense. And who has a yacht anyway? <laughs> this is Philip Green. He is the owner and founder of Topshop. He has a yacht. <laughs> and this is just a little, a little image, an aerial image of the village in the UK, the entire village that was bought by the owner of H&M quite recently. And the other side of the coin. Okay, so Bangladesh is a significant producer. Bangladesh has put all of its eggs in the fast fashion basket. It is one of the epicenters of the ready-made garment industry. And what we have here are steps, about four to six steps of the production cycle. Excuse me a second. So this is where the cut, make, and trim section happens. Those are the main processes that, that happen in Bangladesh, and Bangladesh has become specialized. It is huge in Bangladesh. 80% of the economy is constituted by the ready-made garment industry. It employs 4 million people directly, and then you could probably add on another 4 million people who are dependent. In a, in a country of 160 million with huge poverty, as we know, that is really, really significant. So there are 101 steps. This is the theory bit now. There's 101 steps to making a garment. In the cut, make, and trim army, we're looking at just four to six processes. And this is from seaming a garment, from sewing it on a sewing machine, sometimes cutting, pressing, finishing, packing, and then sending it out. It's low-skilled, but you have to have a cheap labor force in this production model. 
this is a good factory. This is a really, really good factory. It's light, it's airy, there's lots of spaces around. The machines look quite new. You know, this, is a, uh, this would be classified as an A factory. Now, um, you have a really, really brilliant emerging sustainable fashion scene in Australia. And we talk about ethical fashion as being the other side of the coin and one that tries to redress some of the problems in the supply chain. Um, it's been going for a little while. Ali Houston, who's actually Mrs. Bono, this is one of the things she said a while ago. We carry the story of the people who make our clothes around with us. I think that's such a beautiful quote. It really resonates, and it's become really, really important. In 1911, uh, we've always known there's problems, there's issues in supply chain with, with, with garment production. It is a very, very dangerous business, which is funny, isn't it? Because you think of mining, you think of, you know, going into space, you think, you know, th those are dangerous things to do. Working a machine should not be dangerous. You know, sewing a garment should not be dangerous, but it really, really is. This is uh, these are some of the photos from the Triangle Shirtwaist Fire, where 146 people died in New York in 1911. And this was the worst industry to hit the garment trade. It has never been forgotten. In fact, we were talking about it earlier this morning with Tara Moss here, and it's, um, it's never been allowed to be forgotten. Every year there is a vigil that stands outside that previous garment factory, which is now some swanky apartment block, I'm sure. But nobody has forgotten that, and it really changed industrial relations in, in New York. It didn't get rid of sweatshops, it didn't, but it made things a lot safer for the workers. Uh, on the 24th of April, uh, 2013, this is the number of people that died at Rana Plaza, and this is in Bangladesh. This is a very basic drawing of the Rana Plaza factory complex, and I think it's worth having a look at this, because we can see all of the things that went wrong. It is insane to have people producing in this building. Nine floors, well, the top one was under construction. You have really bad foundations made from poor materials. This was never intended for commercial use, um, uh, for industrial use, rather. He had a commercial license, the owner, Sohal Rana, to build this. There were three or four generators on top of that ninth floor that's partly being um, constructed. And they were used because the electricity supply is, is so insecure. And if you stop the electricity, you obviously stop production. And the point is with fast fashion, there is so much pressure at this point that you cannot stop production. A crack started to appear on the building. You can see it there the day before, and the workers were evacuated and sent home. When the workers came in the next day, again, the people that worked in the bank and the shops, they were sent home. The garment workers were forced back into that building, and within hours, the whole building had collapsed like a house of cards. This is what happened at Rana Plaza. This, unfortunately, is something that had been predicted time and time again. There are so many clues in the supply chain. So many campaigners and activists had warned that this was going to happen. It is not the first, and it wasn't to be the last, but it is the most extraordinary, visceral illustration of what has gone wrong with this production supply chain. So this leaves us in a position where we're having to establish compensation. That's all we can do. And there are activists and campaigners like Labour Behind the Label, the Clean Clothes Organisation, who've been working flat out to try and make sure that compensation gets to these victims. There was no buffer for these people. There's no, there's no savings. There's no, these people are living hand to mouth. So this is a real stain on the whole industry that, that Rana Plaza was allowed to happen. It is not the only flashpoint in the supply chain. There are so many human injustices uh, within the, the garment supply chain. If we look at cotton production in, in Uzbekistan, it's a very, very significant cotton player. 
And this is how many children, 1.5 million children, are sent out every year to pick cotton. And this goes right up to kids at college in their early teens who are forced out into the fields. And it is really, really hard going. They sleep, they're not allowed home, so they go and sleep in warehouses, sheds, wherever they can. And can you imagine having to let your child go and you know, be looked after by maybe one adult and there's you know, 50, 60 kids? It's an absolute nightmare. Now, in my book, I really wanted to cover this, but I wanted some eyewitness accounts. And there's been so many really brave people in Uzbekistan who will speak out and tell their story to Western journalists like me. And they are under fear of persecution. You know, this is a very, very difficult environment to operate in. Uh, and I spoke to one uh, young lady who I became very good friends with, who told me all about her experiences picking cotton. And um, she's not... Uh, given her real name in the book. She's called Gulnara, which was a little bit of a joke between us because this is the uh, dictator Karimov's daughter and she's called Gulnara. It's a little, little thing we had. And this is, um, this is her at New York Fashion Week where she's presenting her own collection, her own fashion collection. Uh, and New York Fashion Week seemed to think it was fine to have Gulnara showcasing her fashion collection even though she's from... Uh, a tyrannical uh, family. Um, so there's some, a lot of contradictions around the fashion industry. Now, what we have to focus on is the future. We have to think about the positive elements in the supply chain. We have to think about the work that it can generate, the potential. And we know where the problems are, right? We really do. There is so much information about the supply chain now. Rana Plaza must not be forgotten. That is too many people to lose from the planet in one fell swoop, in one accident, for us, us just to move on and just shop as normal. It just can't happen. And it's really, really important that the 24th of April, which is the first anniversary of Rana Plaza, is something that we commemorate. And there'll be all sorts of things happening. I know there's a really brilliant committee in Australia who are doing lots of different events. And we'll actually be looking at a very, very simple thing, a very simple message, who made your clothes? And we're asking people, we are in the UK, you should do it here too if you're not already, is to wear something inside out, just show the seams of a garment. Let's just think about it. Okay, it's a really basic thing to do. And you can tweet a little picture of yourself wearing something inside out with the right hashtag, Rana Plaza. And we just need to remember. And what this does is it tells the brands that we're watching them and they do need to pay compensation, which is still outstanding, by the way. Uh, out of 28 brands who are producing, only seven have paid into the Rana Plaza Compensation Fund, as administered by the ILO, uh, and that is ridiculous. So it's about a quarter full, and they need to get to $40 million, which is chicken feed for these guys on these yachts. It really is nothing. The other side of it is that we need to look at other ways of producing fashion, which is, does not have the same impact, which prioritizes social justice with all the other things we love about fashion. The problem is that that ethical fashion has been associated with hemp, with tie-dye, and granola. And these are not things that people have wanted to get involved with. <laughs> Essentially, we're saying, uh, we're saying some very, very simple things. This is a beautiful shot, I think. This was taken by a very famous uh, fashion photographer whose name I can't remember, Lillian something. And this shot is called More Fashion Mileage Per Dress. What an amazing concept. She didn't mean it in a sustainable way, but it works. It's a really, really good idea. When you buy a piece, make sure you can commit to wearing it 30 times at least. Make sure you, there's a space in, in your wardrobe for it. Make sure you want it. Now, I got together with a friend of mine, Livia Firth, and we decided that we needed to make sustainable style more fashionable in a way. We needed to show that designers can balance ethics with aesthetic and produce something that's captivating and people want to talk about and that can get on the pages of magazines and newspapers. So we came up with the Green Carpet Challenge, and it was very simple. We had a list of criteria. We gave it to a designer. We worked with a designer, held their hand a little bit, and they produced a completely sustainable piece for one of the international awards events. 
So there's various people there. Cameron Diaz wore Stella McCartney for us. Um, Julianne Moore is wearing Tom Ford. Uh, Meryl Streep, the amazing Meryl Streep, wearing Lan Van, uh, collecting her Oscar, you might notice, in a green carpet challenge dress. Viola Davis in the pink there, wearing Valentino. Emily Blunt, some of the people I don't know. Sorry about that. Not always very good with those names. So this is something we started in 2011. Nicole Kidman there, who's been a fantastic ambassador, and that dress was by the late, great Lorenz Scott, who worked on the Green Carpet Challenge several times. And we rolled this out, so we did a thing called Green Cut. And the way to get designers involved sometimes is to give them something else to think about, so it's not all about sustainability. In this case, we gave them a classic film. We asked them to design a dress inspired by the film, and then uh, it would be to Green Carpet Challenge principles. That's a Tom Ford dress inspired by a 1960s film. So these are just some of the pieces that were produced. And the reason I show you that is because I don't think you go, oh, there's a piece of ethical fashion. I think you just go, there's a piece of fashion. And that's so, so important. From that, we started working quite deep in the supply chain. We came up with the idea of producing something with a passport so it would detail exactly where it's been made. And you could carry, the product would travel with this passport through the rest of its long, we hope, lifespan. And if it was passed on to different owners, they would still know all about this product. And we did this by working on a collection with Gucci of handbags with, with the first zero deforestation certified leather, which is quite a mouthful. But again, you just see the bag. It's just a bag. You don't necessarily have to buy into it for all the principles that we're talking about, some of them which are very difficult. Now, there are some positives. Uh, since, this, since I did this slide, we've now got 150 signatories to the Bangladesh Fire Safety Accord, and those inspections are going really, really well, and they could change the face of how that cycle in, in Bangladesh works so that we're sending people into safe factories rather than death traps. That may sound like a pretty simple thing to do, but even to get to this point has been really, really arduous. We've also got a lot of research to show that consumers are happy to pay a little bit more if they know that some of these issues are being addressed. And there is some research to show it would only cost a little bit more to get some of those people to a living wage. And finally, for this bit, 24th of April, Fashion Revolution Day, please try and commemorate the Rana Plaza victims. And, and remember, we're fighting for a fashion, a wardrobe that we want and that we believe in that expresses us. What we have now does not, and we want something different. Thank you. Thank you, Lucy. There's um, so much in your book. Your book brings together, as, we, as you've described, the social aspects, the economic aspects, the environmental aspects, and that was such an excellent overview for people here. Thank I wanted you. to invite people to start um, heading to the microphones on either side if you have questions for Lucy. And in the interim, I thought I'd ask a few of my own to begin with. Yes, please do. So, you know, you talk a lot about the choices we can make as consumers. And, you know, when I go into a store, I see labels, I see eco, or I see ethical, and I wonder, is there a difference between them? Yeah, there are some uh, labels that work well, there are some that work less well, there are some that I think confuse the issue. Um, you have, we have quite a long tradition now in um, uh, eco standards for fibres. Um, we also have a very vibrant fair trade movement internationally, and some cotton is fair trade certified, which is a great thing. But what people don't tend to understand, and why should they, because it's not explained properly, is that that certifies the commodity, not the product. So in theory, you could have a certified fibre that goes into this ghastly production system and is still made the same way, because the production system is so fragmented. And what we lack are labels that take you the whole way through as a consumer. There are some, the Fairware Foundation is, is very good internationally, and there are some that are really, really working on that. But it's a work in progress, because it's so complex. The supply chain is so complex. Even in Rana Plaza, there were brands, as there are in every accident, where you eventually link 
the brand to the disaster because activists go through the rubble and they pick out the inventory and they pick out tags, whatever they can find. It's evidence, right? It's a forensic scene. And they say to the brand, you are producing this factory, so we need you to help and, and pay compensation. And the brand will say, no, I wasn't. They didn't know. That's the reality of it. There's a lovely thing in your book as well where you talk about truth labels, this idea that yes. you could have this very large tag hanging off each piece of clothing that indicates where every part of the clothing is made and where it's come from. Yeah. And I know that you've spoken to lots of people in your many years of doing this work. Do people want to know? Is that changing? Some people do and some people don't. And it's a really interesting thing. Um, it's like... There are people who want to know everything and are really interested and engaged with the supply chain. And there are people who are like, don't tell me, don't tell me. Because I think they suspect, sometimes wrongly. Um, but the truth labels that I put in the book, so we had a brilliant artist, Claire Mahag, that's drawn these key pieces. We have a sequin top. And they just tell you things like, they reveal that embellishment on tops is done by hand. And yet, if you talk to most consumers, most embellishment's done by hand. If you talk to most consumers and you say, how did that, how did those sequins get in there in that sort of, uh, you know, ad hoc way? And they'll say, oh, a machine did it. And then you think, well, what kind of machine did it? And, uh, you know, how would it have done it? And then the penny drops, and they realise it's been done by a person. Mm -hmm. And yet, and they know that must have taken ages, but they've just paid nothing for this garment, which they intend to wear a couple of times. And at that realisation, point of realisation, I like that point. Mm. It excites me, because I know I've got somebody then. Absolutely. <laughs> I can see we have someone at the microphone here to ready to ask a question for you. Yeah, um, thank you very much. I find what you're um, saying is very inspiring. And I worked in Cambodia with garment factories in Cambodia, so I can see that it's really important what you're saying. One piece I find you perhaps haven't covered, and of course you can't cover everything, is, is the um, generation of the demand for this new fashion. And it's not just the fashion industry, it's responding to a demand. Mm. And that demand is, um, you know, insatiable. What mm. do we do about that? And particularly this need to be updated, yes? Yes, thank you. It's a really, really good point, actually, that you make. And, but, you know, when I speak to younger people, and there are some really young people in the audience today, hello, thank you for coming, thank you. <laughs> Embarrassing, that's so cringy for you. Um, but I'm really glad you're here, rather than driving you away, because it's so important that, you know, we're talking to people now who have never known anything different. You know, it's kind of fine for us, in a way, because we probably grew up with clothes, and we thought about them in a different way. And they're being sucked into this insatiable demand, if you like. And there are a couple of things that are happening that, that, demand, that tell me that demand will only get worse. There's been a very good report done recently um, by uh, an academic sort of analyst analysis person, uh, Dr. Maximilian Martin out of Sweden. And he has basically said, fast fashion is not going anywhere, okay? Because there's lots of activists who think, oh, it's great, we're all going to go back. You know, Rana Plaza was such a flashpoint, we can't ignore it, we're all going to stop consuming. Rubbish, we are not. And he says, quite boldly states, that save a major war, this is just going to get bigger and bigger and bigger. And it's projected to get bigger and bigger, and the markets are opening up. And what we're seeing is the consolidation of lots of these brands. So they're becoming incredibly uh, important corporate entities. They have shareholders. They're very important um, uh, sustaining entire economies. And at that point, it's really, really hard, because the brakes are off, and they have become these hyper-capitalist structures and it's very, very difficult because they are just going to keep bombarding us with more and more stuff at cheaper prices. That is going to happen. So in terms of what we do to stop that desire, we have to educate and bring consumers up because they are going to be consumers. I know nobody likes to be described as a consumer because you have other things about you, I'm sure. But we have to bring them up to have self-worth and uh, a sort of core strength to know that they don't need to be judged by how many different outfits they produce. And I know that's a very, very difficult thing, but it goes back to education, doesn't it? Mm. There's another question here over on this side. I've, I live in a suburb of Sydney, and I'm definitely middle-aged. So I've got two questions. The first is, um, 
how helpful is it when we give our clothes to charity shops for say, possible resale and possible reuse of fabric? Is that helpful? We all go to that effort. Is it truly helpful? And the second thing is, in my suburb, there's two shops that are staffed by women of Asian appearance that do painting of fingernails and toenails. They wear masks. I, never, I don't choose to go in there. I would be very worried that I was exploiting their labour. But to me, that's part of the fashion scene in Sydney. And I'd like to know your comments, because I think it fits into your topic. Yeah, I think... Um, thank you very much. Um, what was the first one? I've forgotten already. The first already. one was about charities. And it's charity shops, yes. Very important, very important charity shops, because the whole issue is very important, because that is often a bit of a, a panacea, isn't it? We think, oh, I bought all this stuff, but I'm going to give all of this to charity. Now, what I would say is that we don't always know what they're going to do with it, because people assume that they give a dress, like a, let's say a nearly new dress to a charity shop. They kind of expect they'll walk past the next day and see it in the window. That doesn't happen very often because these are such massive, massive, um, uh, also complex chains now. And what we see is a lot of that stuff gets um, exported. So Kenya is a massive recipient of textile waste from um, from. Australia, I understand, from the USA, definitely from the UK, definitely from Europe. And there are whole markets, there's a whole different market actually, that exists because of off-casts, of cast-offs rather. So they send them all over there and there is the two sides to that argument. It allows people access to clothing that they wouldn't normally have. Or you could say that it suppresses their own textile trade, and that's really worrying. Because just in the way that people say, you have to let Bangladesh have this textile trade, it is an essential part of how an economy leapfrogs, how it gets to the next stage. If you're denying that of Kenya, because you've got such a glut of clothes, what does that say about us? It's another part of the model which is kind of broken. There is so much waste in the fashion supply chain. If you produce a run of garments, say a skirt, there will be all of that fabric that's been used for that run. Again, maybe in Dubai, it's called overstock. And that will be kept until this has gone out to make sure that there were no faults and they didn't need to redo the whole thing. That's how it works. That overstock is taken and shredded and used in car seat stuffing. And if you think of all the, all the processes and all the energy, all the dyes, everything that's gone in to make that fabric in the first place is extraordinary. So a lot a lot of our fashion waste we're finding in the UK, and I can't speak specifically for Australia, that we're donating to charity shops has been very problematic because of the decline in quality. They can't cope with the volume, and, and there's no point sometimes getting it laundered because it won't last through the cycle, because we're seeing cotton that's bulked out with fillers and nylons, and it, it just doesn't wash well. So when you donate to a charity shop, you have to do it really responsibly, I think. If it's a great piece, if it's a good piece in good condition, there will probably be a market for it and you're doing a really beneficial thing, you're helping to raise funds. And also you could argue you're putting a little spoke in the wheels of the fast fashion juggernaut, aren't you? Mm. And I think you've got a really vibrant um, second-hand vintage scene in Australia from what I've seen and heard. I mean, it's amazing. Do not let them mess with that. That's a really, really important part of your culture. Now I've forgotten the second part of your question. The question was about, jet lag. Was about it, maybe it's about seeing the, the nail art and all the kind yes. of the chemicals that go yeah. into nail. Is that also part of fashion? Well, is that, that is. That sort of, it's more about workers' rights, isn't it, and occupational health and chemicals that people breathe in. Um, look, is to have these nails and yeah. all the nail yeah. art. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. It's a very. Um, it, in some ways, I think it's a great thing that you're able to cosmetically change your look without having to go out and buy a whole new wardrobe. Do you see what I mean? So people can paint their nails like a neon colour or something. And that gives them the little hit, the kick that they wanted. And, and that saves them from going out and buying a whole thing that they're never really going to wear. Mm. So in a way, I quite like it. I do worry about um, the, the way that it's done. And we've had several investigations in Europe into um, exploitation mm. um, in, in beauty parlours. It's not, it's not pretty. We've got some more questions on this side. Hi. I'd just like to know uh, how much 
a piece worker would get per garment when they're making it in Bangladesh, say? Um, well, it depends. The men tend to be paid... Um, mostly men work in knitwear factories. The wages are a little bit higher, and they are um, basically paid per piece, a piece rate, which uh, means that they get higher wages. Uh, a lot of the women who are working um, on the basic sewing floor in woven goods, so most of the goods that Bangladesh produces, um, will be paid a rate, um, a wage, if you like. And this is really, really problematic because it's so low in some cases. Estimates vary, but what we can say with some certainty is that it is well below the cost of living and that it's five times what the equivalent seamstress in China would be paid, which is one of the reasons why Bangladesh is so... Um, five times less. Five, five times less, yes. Um, so in Cambodia, just to change countries quickly, they've recently done quite a big study and they found that the wages do not cover the calories needed to sustain the job. So it is just unbelievable, really. I mean, the... The, the problems even buying food are just extraordinary. This is what we're talking about. I've read different, different um, estimates. Uh, a recent estimate said that um, a normal woman who will usually be, say, an average of 24 or 25, working flat out uh, on the cut-make-and-trim sector in Bangladesh would probably be taking home about 60 US dollars a month, and that doesn't include um, overtime. Certainly... If you look at the accommodation that the workers in the Rana Plaza were living in, they're living in a slum. You know, you have to, you have to look at their quality of life and what they have and don't have to try and make an assessment. And it's really hand-to-mouth. I'm not sorry it's not more specific figure, but it's very, very hotly disputed. And often when we hear about workers being paid a minimum wage, it doesn't mean the minimum wage here. It means the minimum wage in their country, in a country where they're often disallowed to join unions as well. So yeah. it becomes uh, more complicated again. Bangladesh is, is, has been a disaster in terms of joining unions. And that's one of the reasons why it is said that um, the, the factory owners prefer young women because they're much less likely to to agitate to join a union in the first place. Minimum wage in Bangladesh has been very difficult. The government, in principle, signs it off, and we have lots of photos of brands going over and shaking hands and it, the photo call and everything. Um, it doesn't really mean anything. It's not put into in force because, as you say, there are no unions often, so there's no one to enforce them. We talk as well about an Asia floor wage which has been calculated by NGOs and is a much more precise, realistic figure than the minimum wage. It's higher than the minimum wage as well. Right. More question from this side. Hi, Lucy. Uh, thank you again for your insightful talk today. Um, my name's Nerida Lennon, and I'm also working to raise the profile of environmental and social responsibility in fashion and make it more beautiful. And I know a lot about the systems of fashion and how complex it is also, and you've touched on that today, but... It's very hard to navigate as a general consumer and even someone that knows a lot about it, about how to actually put those steps and that information into your life and take action. And you talked a bit about longevity, which is obviously a great starting point, but can you talk a bit more and give some more tips to people, um, consumers, about how to make more environmentally and socially responsible choices in their fashion wardrobe? Yes, and thank you for your work as well. Um, I think it's really important to control what you can control and don't worry about everything that you can't. So that's why I talk a lot about lifespan of garments, committing to wearing something 30 times. That's really, really important. Um, in my book, I kind of go in, because I'm inclined to, as I'm sure you'll get your understanding, to go into things in a lot of depth, to the extent that I start looking at fabric under a microscope. You don't need to do that because... You'll lose friends and, you know, just don't do that. <laughs> but I do think it's nice to actually feel what you feel the stuff that you're going to be wearing and it's going to be part of your life. And I think it's really nice to be a little bit... I'm not a big e-commerce person because I like to see, feel, hold and understand how the garment's going to fall. Um, I think it's really nice to understand a little bit about the fibre that you're buying into 
And just in terms of looking at the label, because some people don't do that anymore, and trying to see if you can understand anything about that garment, and understanding what is going to wash well, what is going to wear well. Very practical things. This is not revolutionary changing the world, I know, but it's about starting with what you can control. And I think we're sort of losing... We're losing the touch, you know. We're not able to assess clothes on that basis, on a quality basis. And quality is so linked to ethics in production, more than price point, actually. So using your sort of quality spec spectacles is really, really important, really important. Then if you want to get deeper into it, you can learn about specific labels, GOT certifications. If you're into materials that are more sustainable, you can learn about that. This is all kind of sketched out in the book where I do try to come up with some sort of solutions. But as you say, it's very, very complicated supply chain. So inevitably, it's going to be making your, your consumerism more complex. Some people are just not up to that or up for it, and they don't want to kind of go into that detail. For people who are, there is so much to get to grips with. Um, and just in terms of which brands to shop with, I get asked that a lot. At the moment, what I'm saying is, make sure that they've signed up to the Bangladesh Fire Safety Accord. It doesn't mean they're clean and green and ethical, but it's a significant move. So check that first. A question from this side. Thank you very much. Good afternoon. Look, I did see the um, expose on the Rana Plaza um, catastrophe. I think it was on SBS some time ago. And I have been watching, you know, where things go after that. And some of the um, uh, uh, manufacturer, you know, the um, fashion labels that were complicit um, in making their garments there have been shamed. I think Target and Cotton On, I, I don't know whether they um, ended up paying the compensation. But my first question is, um, the others that haven't paid the compensation, how can we shame them to do so? And is there some sort of ethical list of companies that do pay the right wages that the, just the general milieu of people can check out that they are doing the right thing? I think most big brands will have a... Um a thing on now on their website where they will have a section called living wage usually. I know H&M do, for example, where they will say what their policy is. Policy and action, two completely different things. And sometimes it's not for the want of trying because it may be that, you know, governments uh, are getting in the way. I mean, Bangladesh has a famous governance problem, right? So I think that what I'm looking for are brands that are working with other brands, not just what they're doing by themselves. Because the whole thing about fashion, it's so secretive. If you think about how many brands sue each other, like luxury brands do this all the time, they're constantly in and out of courtrooms because somebody's stolen someone's hat design or handbag design and it kicks off. They are very, very attuned to antitrust law. So they always say, we're not telling you who, where, which factories we use because he'll nick it. He will steal that from you. So what we've had to do as campaigners and activists is make them work together to be transparent. So Rana Plaza, the accord and the arrangement the, uh, are very, very significant because we see brands working together. As far as paying into the fund, if you go and look at the ILO, the Independent Labour Organisation, who are the neutral chairs of these negotiations, and Industrial which is a European based, I think they're based in Switzerland, as these things always are, um, uh, union. They, Industrial, and it's double L, they have uh, a list, an ongoing updated news about the, who is signed and who hasn't. To make things really complicated, some brands go, yeah, we've paid, but we're not paying through them. So you know when these negotiations start, don't get me started on compensation, by the way. <laughs> these brands came, were forced around a table after Rana Plaza. Some of them came willingly, to be fair. They brought in, they had to bring in a guy, Mr. Kazazi, who is a UN negotiator, who <laughs> has previously uh, brokered deals between Kuwait and Iraq after the Iraq war. He's used to dealing with difficult people, right? <laughs> He, by all accounts, found the brands really, really difficult. So this shows you kind of what we're talking about here, you know. Another question from this side, please. Hi. Um, you've touched on a little bit about what Western consumers can do to be more 
ethical consumers. Um, and I just wanted to touch on the point that it's one thing to educate people and raise awareness about these sorts of things, but it's another to actually change that consumer behaviour and that sort of culture in Western society. So I was just wondering what, if you have any advice or if you know of any initiatives that are really successful or working towards um, sustained cultural and behaviour change? Um, I think it's a really, really good point, but I think there are lots of different initiatives. I don't, I'm not qualified to say which ones are successful and not, especially in Australia, but there's a lot of things going on. There's, um, in the US, the new Center for American Dreams. I've always found them an amazing organization. Uh, and they look at consumption very, very carefully. There's also um, a lot of um, organizations who are de dealing with... Um, the circular economy and everything around that, and things like processes, which some designers have really, really got to grips with, um, such as cradle-to-cradle -cradle design, where there is no waste, where you effectively design out waste. And I think with lots of these things, you look at it and you find that the problems, the flashpoints, are all just stupidity. You know, a lot of... A lot of people don't set out to be evil and create an evil supply chain. It's just their business model isn't working. I know for a fact in fast fashion that some people use very old equations when they place orders. That's not helping. Um, I go into the book as to why that is. I won't do that here. But there are design solutions and technical solutions, and lots of organizations are working on those. But that's not the full extent of the story, because as you say, the, the hyper-capitalist nature of these companies and allowing them to lobby at every level, as we're seeing previously, we've seen with energy companies, for example, I would argue that some of these corporations that have a fashion part are behaving in a very similar way to we used to see energy companies, which is what happens when things become incredibly profitable within this hyper-capitalist uh, landscape. You know, and it's very difficult to put a box on it, and it uh, to put a lid on that box. So it is about standing up for generic rights, including the environment, you know, and it is about being part of Oxfam or Greenpeace or whatever organization you feel stands up really well to those issues, rather than a specific uh, little organization, maybe, that's dealing with a particular technical fix in the supply chain. Do you see what I mean? Mm -hmm. These issues, but some people say to me, fashion doesn't matter, what are you talking about? You know, obviously I argue back, but they say, well, what are you talking about? It's just fashion. No, these are really essential environmental and humanitarian issues. You know, this is a, this is, like I say, Rana Plaza was like the black box recorder for so many of these, of these issues. And it's really, it's about justice, social and environmental justice. A question from over this side. Hello, my name is Etienne Cohen and this is Zoe Campbell. And we work with the Chapel by the Sea at Bondi Beach. Um, we believe that we do have a way of breaking the cycle. We do believe that we do have a solution. And as you say, there are many um, charity shops now that are, are doing this. We're finding that a lot of young people are becoming much, much more aware of what they buy, of the labels, etc. And we actually offer a service where we will pick up people's clothing because we know that they have not much time, but they want to do something good. Um, and we'll be standing outside and handing out leaflets to people who do want to do something about the amount of clothing that they have or also to do something worthwhile. I'd also like to say that it is my experience that when people come into the, our shop, they're looking for quality garments that perhaps have a label. And that's something that I'm finding is increasing. I don't know whether that's because people realise that the clothes are made better, they can keep them longer, but we are into fashion mileage and very few of our clothes go to um, other areas like Africa, etc. And um, all of the money that we raise goes to local charities. So it's not like it goes to some amorphous place where it's not actually, nobody knows where it goes to. So I think when people know these things, they're willing to change their habits. And I wonder what you think about young people becoming more aware of breaking the cycle in this way. Well, you've obviously got some really good ones that come and shop with you. And yeah. um, uh, it sounds amazing what you're doing, Etienne and Zoe. I ran to Bondi Beach yesterday, so I know where that is now. I'm training for the marathon. <laughs> She went from the city to Bondi Beach and then back to the city yesterday for fun. And it's still not even half the distance I've got to do on April the 13th. 
But I do, um, I think you're exactly, I think you, you make a really good point when you say that you explain to people exactly what you're doing and you've set it all up so the processes are really transparent and people, you've got an end goal and I think people buy into that whatever age they are. Do you know what I mean? So I think that's why your thing works really, really well. And I wish more people would be like that. Like, really, really explain and cover every single base. And make you take the complexity out of the second-hand clothing market because you say, we'll deal with it. We will, we will be responsible for that chain. I think that's a brilliant thing to do. I think what I'm seeing... It's interesting you talk about brands. I think, actually, what we're starting to see in some areas of London where uh, thrift shopping, vintage has been around for a really long time and has got quite sophisticated. We're starting to see younger people basically uh, move away from brands entirely. And we're starting to see, I call them hipsters, which means I'm not hip. And they're, they're starting to come out of uh, design schools or whatever. They don't have aspirations to work for a brand, a, a major luxury label. They don't care. They think it's actually not very cool. And we're starting to see people move away from the brand, which is really, really interesting mm. and could possibly cause the fashion revolution that we're all sort of hoping for. I think that's really niche at the moment, but I find it really, really exciting. Lucy, thank you so much. We have unfortunately run out of time. I wanted to say that Lucy will be signing her books in the foyer. But in the interim, thank you all for coming and please join me in thanking Lucy Siegel. Thank you very much. Thank you. That was great.